Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. New Yorkers weathered the storm of George Santos. Today, New Yorkers are heading out into an actual storm to try to replace him. The lead starts right now. We're in the final hours of voting in a high-stakes special election in New York's 3rd Congressional District. What will the outcome in this one swing district tell us about what might happen this November? Plus, $95 billion in aid for Ukraine and Israel passing the U.S. Senate at around 5.30 this morning after an all-night session. But in the House, Speaker Mike Johnson declares aid for those U.S. allies all but dead. Democrats do have some options to force a vote, though, and Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries will join us soon. And... Dumb, shameful, un-American. President Biden unleashing a blistering response to former President Donald Trump's comments about NATO. We'll play that moment for you in a sec. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start with our political lead. A monster nor'easter is colliding with a battleground special election for a single House district up for grabs in New York. In the context of a razor-thin Republican majority in the House, Right now on Long Island and parts of Queens, the fight for New York's third congressional district is in its final hours. Yes, this is the vacant seat previously held by serial fabulist Republican Congressman George Santos, who was ejected from Congress in an extremely rare vote. Democrat Tom Suozzi, who represented that district for three terms, he wants his seat back, but he has to beat Republican newcomer Mozzie Pillip to get it. This race has national implications and could provide both parties with a preview of how America's suburbs and battleground areas might might vote come November. Voters have been primarily focused on the issues of inflation, the war in Israel and Gaza, and abortion rights throughout this race. But no issue has proven more important than immigration and the border and the migrant crisis that's playing out in nearby Manhattan. A lot is on the line. Joining us now is CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox, who is live for us in East Meadow, New York, at the headquarters of Republican candidate Mozzie Pillip. Lauren, you recently heard from the candidate, from Ms. Pillip. How does she feel about her chances tonight? Yeah, Mozzie Pillip held a couple of small events, took some questions from reporters, and her key message, Jake, is get out and vote. She made it clear her campaign is offering rides to folks who may not feel comfortable getting out on the road. But she also was asked whether or not she was going to accept the results of this election tonight, no matter if she wins or not. Here's what she said. Whatever it is, we're going to respect the results. Maybe tonight we're going to celebrate. If not, the latest is going to be tomorrow morning. And again, you will accept whatever comes in. Absolutely. We live in the United States. I have big respect on our system. It's going to be great. You know, I'm not here to fight with anybody. We did our job. And now the voters are going to make that decision. And we're going to respect that. 
And perhaps one of the liabilities for Pillup is the fact that House Republicans have been unable to do so many of the things that they promised voters because of their slim majority. I asked her whether or not she viewed that as a liability. She said, in fact, she argues to voters that is exactly why they need to send her to Congress, because one more vote, she argues, could make a difference for Speaker Johnson. Jake? Yeah, she has a very uh, interesting story for people just seeing her for the first time. She's an Ethiopian who moved to Israel, served with the Israel Defense Forces, now lives in New York. Lauren, what are you hearing from voters that is driving them to turn out for this election? Yeah, every single voter that we have talked to over the course of the last 24 hours in this district, Jake, unprompted, has brought up the issue of the border. And for people who are planning to vote for Tom Swazi, a couple of Trump voters actually who we talked to at a diner this morning, they say they view Swazi as able to work with Republicans to find some kind of bipartisan agreement. Not a lot of people are talking about that short-lived Senate agreement that was found and then died a quick death in the Senate. They are also, you're hearing from Republicans who are voting for Pillup, that the issue of immigration isn't just about the border. It really becomes an issue for them about crime, an issue about the economy. In fact, one dad that I talked to this morning said he's actually nervous to take his kids into the city because of all the headlines he's seen over the last several weeks. Jake? All right, Lauren Fox, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now is CNN's John Berman. He's live at a polling site in Carl Place, New York. Uh, John, how would you describe voter turnout right now? Well, Jake, welcome to Carl Place High School, home of the frogs. And for the first time today, there are lines here at this voting location. It wasn't like this a few hours ago. It was empty, and that's because of the weather here. People walk in, they come to one of these tables, they get their ballot. There are seven election districts here in this town, precincts. You pick up your ballot, you vote, and then you end up putting it in one of the machines. Now, as we've been saying, the story here today is turnout. And to give you some perspective, Jake, in the 3rd Congressional District in 2022, I'm going to slow down because I'm going to walk into a voter here, and there were no voters here before. In 2022, 192,000 voters voted on Election Day in the 3rd Congressional District. 192,000 Election Day voters two years ago. Today, as of 3.30 p.m., only 39,000 voters voted on Election Day versus about 80,000 who voted early. Now, as one of these uh, voting machines, I was telling you before, people vote, they put their ballots into these voting machines. I can't shoot the screen behind you, but in this machine, 149 people have put in ballots. There's a number there that counts how many ballots, about to be the 150th ballot in this voting machine. There are seven of them. Um, you can get a sense of how few people have been voting, even though it is crowded here now. You're dealing with dozens of votes in each machine as opposed to hundreds, maybe even thousands, if this was a more you know, a busier election day. I'm just going to make my way outside here, Jake, because we're going to talk to a voter. We can't talk to voters inside. And again, it is really remarkable that we're in the midst of all these people now because a little bit earlier, there was no one here. They waited for the storm to end. You can see the remnants of the snow here, and they came out to vote. We've got some voters here to talk to. Great to see you. The roads are clear, so here yeah. we are. What do you need? We waited all day. Karen and Carl, Carl Santoro. Santoro. Okay. From Carl Place. Place. What got you out here to vote? Well, uh, we like Tom Swazi. We've known about him when he was the county executive, and uh, we trust him. And we was want he the county executive? Yeah, he was, and <laughs> no. we want to get him uh, Glenn Cole. a Democrat in the position. What's the most important issue to you? Uh, 
Usually it's taxes, you know. And, and you know, um, the Republicans made a really bad choice with Santos. So we don't want, to we don't want it to happen, happen again. again. Listen, thank you so much for coming up. Thank you for, uh, you know, getting out here through the snow. Be safe getting home. So, Jake, it is interesting. We've talked to a lot of people here. This is the first group that I've talked to that did not say the border was the most important issue or one of the most important issues. But what's so interesting about the border as an issue, Jake, is here in the 3rd Congressional District today, we are seeing people voting for the Democrat, Tom Suozzi, even though they say the border is the most important issue. He ran on that issue. He leaned into it, and he is, at least at this polling place so far, Jake, seeing some results. All right, John Berman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now is former Congressman Steve Israel, a Democrat who represented New York's 3rd District for 16 years, in addition uh, to once being the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Congressman, good to see you. Long Island's been a bit of an outlier in recent elections. What do you think tonight's results will tell us about what what we should expect in November? Well, first, Jake, listening to your guests, I just had a, like a flashback to one of my congressional town halls. I feel very comfortable right now. Um, there are going to be lessons learned in this special. I, look, this is going to be too close to call. It's been within the margin of error up to now. It will continue to be within the margin of error until all the votes are counted. Um, but there will clearly be lessons learned. One is um, where you have immigration and crime as a predominant issue, as it is in the third congressional district, does it make sense for Democrats to lean into to those issues, which is exactly what Tom Suozzi did. He leaned into the issues. He kind of fought on Mozzie Phillips' ground, talking about immigration. His literature featured pictures of him and former Republican Congressman Peter King, who uh, is a moderate but rather firm on, on border issues. And so Suozzi waged the battle on his opponent's turf. There'll be a lesson learned there. If Mozzie wins, it's a vindication of a Republican strategy to run a completely unknown candidate against an establishment candidate. Mozzie Phillip did one debate, Jake. Um, you know, we had Santos, who was the fabulist. Uh, she has been a phantom. Uh, she has been in the witness protection program. And we will see whether that strategy of running somebody on brand, which is I'm going to close the border, uh, is the preferable strategy against a more establishment and well-known candidate like Tom Suozzi. So talk about the stakes here, because there is a, an historically thin margin in the House. I think Speaker Johnson has seven more seats than Democrats right now, which means he can only afford uh, to lose uh, three Republicans any one vote. There are even Republicans who say they miss Santos because he was a Republican vote. How big a role could this one seat play? Well, it, it can play a very significant role. This is a, maybe a local special election, but it has overriding national consequences. If Tom Suozzi wins, uh, Speaker Johnson's uh, uh, margin is cut even further. It's down to a few votes. And we saw what happens when you can't count on your margin when they fail to impeach Secretary Mayorkas last week. So it's a real psychological blow. It creates a math problem for Republicans uh, on the floor of the House. Uh, and it establishes a narrative for Democrats going into the national election. So you have said that your own party, the Democratic Party's complacency is how you lost this congressional district uh, in the last yeah. election, a district that Joe Biden won by eight points. Was the election of Santos an effective wake up call for your party to, to get back in the game on Long Island? Absolutely. Uh, it was complacency. Everybody assumed that the Democrats were going to win the district because Biden won it by eight. And then what happened, Jake? Lee Zeldin won the same district by 11 points. George Santos won the district by seven points. 
that was a wake up call uh, for Democrats. And now the question is, will they be activated? And by the way, I'm looking at numbers. You know, you can take the congressman out of the House. You can't take the political junkie out of the congressman. So I'm looking at turnout numbers that just came in that suggest that both parties have a lot of work to do because of the snow uh, that was a real impediment to turnout earlier today. You, re- you referenced uh, Lee Zeldin. For those that don't know, uh, last November, Lee Zeldin was a popular Republican congressman who ran for governor. He did not win, uh, but he had a good showing for a Republican statewide and is credited uh, to having helped at least three or four House Republicans uh, get elected by bringing out Republican uh, voters. The Republican candidate here, Mozzie Pillip, is a registered Democrat running as a Republican Um, What does the fact that this relative newcomer who has generally avoided the press only agreed to one debate, the fact that she's polling as well as she is and is really in the hunt, could well win this seat, what does it tell you about how weak Democrats are in suburban districts such as the New York 3rd? Well, I would make a distinction because, in fact, Democrats have been overperforming in every single special election in suburban areas since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade uh, in every single case in Ohio and in Georgia in Virginia and elsewhere. Democrats have actually been overperforming and they've actually been leading President Biden by an average of about 4% uh, in those specials. But this is different. New York 3 is different and it's different because of what we just heard on this broadcast by your guests. There is a massive deep concern about immigration. And why is that? Why is it salient here? Not as salient elsewhere. Because every several days, there's another headline about a caravan, a bus load of, immig- of migrants arriving in New York, sent by Governor Abbott in Texas and others. Uh, there are photographs. You turn on the news. That is the dominant narrative. And Jake, particularly in a special election where you don't have a lot of time to you know, refine your message and take control of the message, you are reacting to real-time headlines. And those headlines have all been about the border and migration, another lesson that I know Democrats will be looking at uh, after the results are in. Former Congressman Steve Israel, good to see you again, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Dumb and un-American, that's the quote. President Biden issuing a direct rebuke of Donald Trump amidst Trump's controversial claims about NATO. And as President Biden continues to criticize Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Israelis I'm sorry, America's CIA chief is on the ground in Egypt trying to negotiate a hostage deal. Stay with us. Right now, New York voters are casting their ballots in a special election with implications that will reach into November and the race for the White House. And speaking of the race for the White House... President Biden just responded to Donald Trump's attacks on the key alliance known as NATO. The former president has sent a dangerous and shockingly, frankly, un-American signal to the world. The whole world heard it. The worst thing is he means it. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Well, let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. President Biden responding to comments Trump made on the campaign trail Saturday when he encouraged Russia, and I'm quoting here, to do whatever the hell they want to any NATO ally that does not pair its fair share of defense spending, as is agreed to in the NATO charter. 
one of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. Joining us now, our political panel, David Urban, let me start with you. Biden <laughs> suggesting that what Trump said about Russia and NATO is dumb and un-American. What, what do you think? Look, uh, as I said many times over and over, the only one that can beat Donald Trump in this election is Donald Trump. And he's doing a pretty good job right there. Uh, look, what, what, the, what the former president was doing is what he did in his previous administration. He was recounting a story, by the way, that happened when he was president, saying that if the NATO allies don't pay up, they're not really a part of NATO, right? If you're not, if you're not paying to be a member of the club, are you really a member of the club? And uh, in, in, the, in the latest uh, uh, Davos gathering of, of world leaders, you saw a little of this hand-wringing about, man, maybe we should pay our 2%. Maybe we should pony up and be better partners. Maybe we should, no matter who is going to be the next president of the United States, maybe Europe should care about defending Europe more than the United States should. And, and, and I think Trump was kind of reflecting that a little, that, that kind of squeeze again, negotiating from position of toughness. And, and look, Americans realize that the reasons that the Germans and the French have eight-week vacations in the summer and they've got great health care and universal education for everybody is because we, the United States taxpayers, have been burden, shouldering the burden of defending the European continent for 50 years. So, so they should pay up. I don't, I don't, listen, the inv Putin invade whatever country you want. I think it's a little bit over the line, but I think our NATO allies should pony up their fair share or they should not be considered a part of NATO. Either you're paying your dues or you're kicked out of the club. Uh, so, um, Kristen, let me, let me ask you um, how you think this might have an effect on voters. But before I do, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General C.Q. Brown, said yesterday that U.S. credibility is at stake following Trump's comments. Take a listen. We have a responsibility to uphold those alliances. Uh, U.S. credibility is at stake with each of our alliances, and uh, U.S. leadership is still uh, needed, wanted, and watched. And it's the steps that we take to uh, support those alliances are, are important, not just with NATO, uh, but I'd say the other alliances we have around the world as well. Do you think this could have play an impact in the election in November, assuming Trump is the nominee? I'm skeptical, if only because foreign policy issues just in general are so far below domestic policy issues. And so if Donald Trump can make the case, look, you may not love what I said, but I'm just trying to keep the focus and our money and our resources here at home. I can see this being more of a non-issue for some voters. With that said, I do think that your swing voter this November is going to be looking at who's going to bring about the most stability and order in the world and at home. And right now, Donald Trump actually has a slight advantage on that issue. He is throwing it away by making comments like this. Paul, what do you think? I like that Joe Biden is using plain, simple, strong language. <laughs> it shows strength. It conveys strength. I agree with Paul. Dumb. <laughs> good. Un-American, by the way, loser, which he used a, a, a couple of weeks ago, weak, really important to go at Trump just that way. And, and I, I do think, Christian, and you're the pollster, you know better, but Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, this is not a national election anymore. We're down about five or six states, and at least three of them have huge Eastern European populations. Uh, Ukrainian Americans, Polish Americans, Hungarian Americans, Czech Americans, all of whom really do care about what happens in the motherland. So I do think that weakness and tagging Trump with being weak and dumb is a, is a really powerful way to go after him. Karen, let's uh, go back to the special election if we could. Um, I want you to listen to what Tom Suozzi, the Democrat in the race, uh, former Democratic congressman representing that district, what he told me about what Democrats knew, need to do better in districts like this congressional district, battleground districts. 
Democrats have not been speaking to the people about the issues they care about. They care about the cost of living right now. They care about immigration and the border. They care about public safety. Uh, they care about climate, quite frankly. They do talk about climate, but uh, too many issues that people talk about at the dinner table every day are not brought up by the Democratic Party. That's, that's a Democrat saying that. Uh, well, a Democrat who is up for election today, let's mm -hmm. be clear. I don't completely agree with everything he's saying. I think Democrats are trying to talk about the things that people care about. In fact, we just had a border bill that where Democrats were willing to go much farther than ever before to get a deal, and it was Republicans who walked away. And by the way, in that deal would have been resources for cities like New York City to actually deal with the influx of migrants. But it was the Republicans who walked away. So, you know, he's got to say what he needs to say in order to sound moderate in that district. But what I do think is right is that it's not just that we have to talk to voters about the issues they care about, but we have to understand that for different groups of voters, so like when we talk about the economy, what that means if you are a middle-class African-American person mm -hmm. in Milwaukee is not the same as if you are a you know, white family in North Carolina versus if you're in Arizona. And so I think we do have to remember that you know, people are not monolithic, groups are not monolithic, and we have to be able to talk to people about these issues in the ways that it resonates with them and what their concerns are. Kristen, let me ask you, because Biden gets a lot of blame by voters for the crisis at the border, uh, and even a lot of Democrats would say deservedly so. What about the behavior of Republicans in Congress over the last week, wanting a border bill, rejecting what is arguably a very conservative compromise bill, then saying that they would take up the foreign aid bill, then saying they won't take up the foreign aid bill, and on and on. Will any of that be held against Republicans, or is that just two in the weeds? Well, to the extent that it sort of sends the signal that your party cannot competently govern, that's a real problem. Um, and so whether it is the minutiae of specific issues and, oh, well, I didn't like this provision of this bill or that or the other, I do think that it does not send a great signal about, hey, don't you want Republicans in charge and governing? So I don't think the last few weeks have been very good for congressional Republicans. With that said, on an issue like immigration, Republicans still have such a significant advantage on something like border security that for a voter who is not deep in the weeds of the bills, if they hear Republicans say this isn't tough enough on the border, Republicans still, I think, win and have more credibility on that issue the last few weeks set aside. How do you think this bill and what just happened with all this legislation plays in Pennsylvania? Hey, look, Jake, I, I think, you know, I had a big discussion with this Dan Sullivan, Senator Sullivan, this past weekend, who I think is a great American, great senator. Uh, you know, I, I take the stand, you know, being a former military guy, I would have voted for the bill, I think, that on the foreign aid portion of it, right? I think that it's a, it's mis, mislabeled, should be the defense industrial supply, you know, base Reinvigoration Act, because most of the money in this bill goes to Pennsylvania, Alabama, Arizona, to U.S. workers to make more weapons to give to the Ukrainians to fight our, our, our enemy, right? So I'm not quite sure where, why Republicans aren't rallying around this. This is very Reagan-esque. Like, we should really be standing strong. I think that cuts against them, cuts against Republicans in Pennsylvania, hurts in swing states if it's messaged correctly. Right. All right, everyone, thanks, and we'll come back to you. Later in the show, coming up next, we go to Cairo, where America's spy chief is pushing for a hostage deal with Hamas. Will he be able to strike a deal? Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there. Some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our world lead, high-stake negotiations in Cairo today, where CIA chief Bill Burns met with his Israeli counterpart, along with Qatari and Egyptian mediators, they are, they are all trying to reach a hostage and at least temporary ceasefire deal with Hamas. Sources tell CNN that talks remain difficult, but the mediators are working to try to reach an understanding within the next 24 hours. Every second, of course, is crucial as civilian casualties climb and the hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th to Gaza. Their whereabouts remain unknown. Uh, the Gaza, the Hamas-controlled health ministry is estimating that more than 28,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since Israel began retaliating on October 7th. Though so CNN cannot independently verify those numbers. And Gaza officials do not differentiate between those killed who are Hamas militants and terrorists and those who are innocent civilians. Fear and panic is now falling over displaced civilians in the southern city of Rafah in Gaza as the IDF plans for a ground offensive. CNN's Nada Bashir takes a closer look at the situation on the ground there and a warning. Some of the images you are about to see are quite distressing. Seemingly endless chaos in this field hospital in Rafah. Doctors, volunteers crammed into this small tent delivering whatever care they are still able to provide. Overnight on Tuesday, another round of airstrikes on a city once thought to be the only safe place left for more than a million displaced civilians. Just 24 hours prior, airstrikes carried out by Israel as part of an operation to secure the release of two hostages killed more than 100, according to the Palestine Red Crescent. The bombardment of Rafah has left widespread destruction in its wake. And countless families are mourning. A warning of what could lie ahead for civilians here should Israel launch a full-scale ground offensive on the city. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has pledged safe passage for civilian evacuations, but a military plan has yet to be provided and the prospect has heightened fears among Gaza civilians. The nights are so difficult here in Rafah. Where else are we supposed to go? Where else are we supposed to live? With nowhere left to turn, some families are now fleeing Rafah 
to return to parts of central Gaza. Whatever belongings they have left, stacked above cars. We're tired of fleeing from one city to another. We're so tired. I just hope the world will stand with us, will have mercy on us. North of Rafah, the nightmare this embattled region has endured is evident. <laughs> the airstrikes here are still relentless. The suffering of the Palestinian people unending. Everyone has been killed. My grandchildren, Anas, look at him. He was only two years old, this grandfather says. He was the best thing in my life. So much pain in this grandfather's distraught cries. But there is little time to grieve. Funerals here are swift and constant. We are peaceful people. We were just in our homes. We have no involvement in politics. We just want the war to end. Diplomatic efforts to secure a prolonged truce have so far failed to deliver concrete results. The CIA's director, now in Cairo for talks with the Egyptian president, Israel's intelligence chief and the Qatari prime minister. One official calling the talks, quote, difficult but nudging forward. But warnings of an expected ground offensive in Rafah could place those talks in jeopardy, as Hamas threatens to pull out if Israeli troops enter the city. And Jake, we have just learned from an Israeli uh, source telling CNN that the Israeli delegation is now returning home from Cairo. We heard from a U.S. official just a little earlier saying that those talks were productive and serious, but did not arrive at any sort of breakthrough that would result in a final agreement, though negotiations are said to be ongoing. The major sticking point, the matter of disagreement at this stage, according to another uh, U.S. official familiar with the matter, uh, is the ratio of Palestinian prisoners that would be exchanged for hostages, Israeli hostages held captive by Hamas. Of course, a lot of pressure mounting from the international community, and we have heard from Hamas officials telling CNN that the next 24 hours will be critical in, in assessing the state of those negotiations. All eyes, of course, very much still on Rafah, the southern city in Gaza, and the potential for a ground operation there, and what that will mean for those talks of negotiations. Jake? All right, Nana Bashir in Cairo, thank you so much. New details on the moment. A woman entered Joel Osteen's megachurch with an automatic rifle with and her seven-year-old son in tow and opened fire. Stay with us. In our national lead, we have video capturing the moment that Texas churchgoers heard gunfire and ran for the exits on Sunday. That shooting Sunday at Pastor Joel Osteen's Houston megachurch ended after two off-duty officers killed the attacker, a woman armed with two weapons, including an AR-15. The woman's seven-year-old son, whom she'd brought along with her, was critically injured in the crossfire. And now the shooter's mother-in-law is speaking out, calling it a completely preventable horror. CNN's Ed Lavendera has been following the story closely and joins us now. Ed, we know police are still working to determine a motive what more are you learning from the shooter's mother-in-law? Well, as we heard from investigators and all of this, they painted a rather complex a picture of what the early belief is on the motivations behind this shooting at this prominent uh, Lakewood megachurch in Houston. Uh, the mother-in-law of 36-year-old Genesee Moreno, the woman who was shot and killed 
here by two off-duty police officers, says uh, that her former daughter-in-law uh, suffered from mental illness. And she also detailed uh, the, the extent to which the family uh, tried to seek help for her over the years. She spoke with CNN affiliate KHOU. She threatened her husband's life. She threatened mine. She threatened to kill her own son. And we still couldn't get intervention. We asked for help from CPS or Child Protective Services, Family Services. We've asked for help from police and received it many times. But she was still allowed to own guns. And in a Facebook post, Jake, uh, the mother-in-law also uh, elaborated. She wrote, uh, my daughter-in-law, when she was taking medication for schizophrenia, was a very sweet and loving woman, but mental illness is real illness. And when family members seek emergency protections, they're not doing so for their own sake, but for the sake of the person who is ill. Uh, the the uh, mother, she said, reached out to Child Protective Services multiple times. We've reached out to Child Protective Services here in Texas. They say that because of privacy issues, they are not allowed to comment, but they are investigating. Uh, but this mother-in-law's comments really kind of paint a, 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 an even more troubling pictures uh, and suggest that, you know, there are warning signs that were missed uh, several times along the way here. Jake? Mr. Ignored. Um, the shooter had a criminal history. Police knew of her mental health issues as well. CNN, look at all these uh, posts of her mugshots in the past, dating back to 2005. CNN obtained uh, social media posts in which she flaunts having these lethal weapons. Texas does not have any red flag laws. Was there anything that officials could have done to have prevented this per Texas law? You know, investigators have been asked that question. They say they're, you know, they're looking into it. Um, uh, but clearly, um, if, if there is, it wasn't used in, in any capacity in, in this situation, raising the, the concerns about exactly what does it take uh, at this point for, for someone to be denied a weapon. So we're still waiting more details on exactly how she obtained uh, these weapons. We're told she, per she made uh, the, uh, obtained the weapons legally, uh, but we're, we don't know the full extent of how that unfolded, Jake. Ed, do we know how the little boy is doing? Uh, well, last we heard, the, the seven-year-old boy who is the, the child of Genesee Moreno is still in critical uh, condition. Uh, if you remember, the, the latest details we have is that in the middle of that shooting, that young boy was shot in the head. So as far as we know, he remains in critical condition, but clearly fighting for his life. Ed Levandera, thank you so much. Right on the heels of killing the most conservative border deal in decades. Conservative House Speaker Mike Johnson is at it again. In our politics lead, money desperately needed to resist Russian invaders in Ukraine or hunt down Hamas terrorists or shore up Taiwan's democracy, all of it, billions of dollars of worth, it, worth of it, hangs precariously between bipartisan support in the U.S. Senate and Republican intransigent and divisions in the U.S. House. In the early morning hours today, nearly half of Senate Republicans joined Democrats in passing $95 billion in foreign aid. But House Speaker Mike Johnson greeted the breakthrough in the months-long debate with a shrug. His stated reason, the bill fails to address security at the U.S. border, which is true. But this is after he killed a border deal that the conservative Border Patrol Union supported which had been part of the Senate deal, but then was removed. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Senator, if House Speaker um, Johnson won't bring this bill to a vote, 
when tied to a border deal or without being tied to a border deal, how do you get this passed in the House? Well, Jake, that's a great question. As you said in your uh, introduction there, very early this morning, by a strong bipartisan vote of 70 to 29, the Senate sent to the House uh, a $95 billion national security supplemental. There's a few different ways it could come through the House and get to the president's desk. I am hopeful that Speaker Mike Johnson will yet be persuaded that there is urgency. Ukraine is running out of ammunition and running out of time. And Speaker Johnson has said he supports Ukraine in its fight on the front lines of freedom against Russian aggression. The reason we don't have a border security provision, as you just indicated, was that former President Donald Trump turned on the bill, campaigned against it, and persuaded Republicans to defeat a bill that would have given President Biden both money and authorities he needs to secure our southern border. So if they have a better idea over in the House, they should send it to the Senate, but they should take up this security bill first and pass it. I want to get your take on uh, Donald Trump saying uh, that he had a conversation with the head of a NATO country when he was president, and they said, what are you going to do if we don't pay 2% of our uh, defense budget, uh, 2% of our budget on defense? And he said, I, well, I wouldn't protect, I'm paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of, we wouldn't protect you, the U.S. wouldn't protect you, and I would tell the Russians to do whatever the hell they want. Uh, what was your response to that? This was a, a shocking thing for a former president and likely candidate of the Republican Party to be the next president to say, not just if he did actually have that conversation while he was president, but that he's bragging about it now. In the face of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, our European allies have upped their defense spending dramatically. I was recently in Poland with my Republican colleague, Mike Rounds. Poland is spending 4% of their GDP on defense. We recently welcomed Chancellor Schultz, uh, who visited with a dozen senators before he met with President Biden. They have dramatically increased their defense spending and welcomed millions of refugees from Ukraine and helped lead the work in NATO and in Europe to arm and support Ukraine. For the President of the United States, former and possibly future, to say intentionally that he would willfully throw our NATO allies to the Russian wolves if they didn't pay up, suggests that NATO isn't a collective security treaty, but a protection racket where he's shaking down our allies for them to increase their defense investment. Um, I think this was beneath a president and a strong reason why he should not be reelected. Your Democratic colleague from Maryland, Chris Van Hollen, uh, took to the Senate floor and said this about Israel in its war against Hamas in Gaza. Take a listen. Kids in Gaza are now dying from the deliberate withholding of food. In addition to the horror of that news, one other thing is true. That is a war crime. It is a textbook war crime. And that makes those who orchestrate it war criminals. So he is saying that Israel is committing war crimes and that Benjamin Netanyahu and others are war criminals. Do you agree? 
Look, my friend and colleague, Senator Van Hollen, has been very passionately engaged in advocating for humanitarian relief to get into Gaza. Uh, and he recognizes that the intentional interference with the delivery of humanitarian relief, that the use of hunger as a weapon of war is a war crime. I agree with that. Uh, whether or not that means that Prime Minister Netanyahu um, should be accused of or in any way charged with a war crime, there is a gap between those two points. And it's important that we continue um, to fund humanitarian relief, that we in Congress and our president continue to press relentlessly uh, on the IDF and on Prime Minister Netanyahu to facilitate the delivery of humanitarian aid. Look, Jake, we are on the verge of a potential IDF assault on Rafah. Um, that would be a disaster. And I would urge Israeli leadership uh, with whom I've spoken recently um, to step back from this precipice and to not move ahead until there is a clear and credible plan uh, for conducting any further campaigns in Gaza without increasing civilian deaths. Do you see any disconnect between staying up all night to give Israel billions of dollars to conduct this war and what you just said? Well, I also stood up all night, uh, stayed up all night for the $10 billion in critically needed humanitarian aid that is a part of this package. Uh, every package of funding includes things uh, that we are excited about and supportive of, things that we can find our way to support, and things we have challenges with. I have long been a strong supporter of Israel, and I continue to believe that supporting Israel in their fight against Hamas, which carried out a horrific terrorist attack, the worst attack on Jews in the world since the Shoah, is something that is worth doing. But it stands in stark contrast to the humanitarian cost of this war. President Biden has consistently called on Prime Minister Netanyahu to change the conduct of their campaign against Hamas to one that reduces civilian deaths and consequences. And there have been significant steps in that direction taken by the administration. Mm -hmm. Jake, I hope and pray that the urgent negotiations to release hostages and achieve a ceasefire will succeed in coming days. That's the path I hope we are on. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, thanks so much. Appreciate it, sir. Sheriff's deputies in Texas opened fire on a woman they thought was an intruder. She was not. And she's now in the hospital with five gunshot, wound, gunshot wounds. We have the body cam footage, and her attorney, Ben Crump, is here to talk about it. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a woman shot five times by deputies after they mistook her for an intruder. She was not. Thankfully, she survived. We have the new body cam video, and her attorney, Ben Crump, is in studio. Plus, after nine years away and out of his studio and away from his desk, Jon Stewart is back behind his desk, managing to get under the skin of some Democrats. And leading this hour, voters in New York's 3rd Congressional District are braving today's winter storm to replace former Congressman George Santos, who brought a very different kind of storm to that district. 
Joining us now is Miguel Marquez. He's live in Woodbury, New York, at the headquarters of former Democratic Congressman Tom Suozzi, who is running for his old seat. Uh, Miguel, what's the atmosphere like over there right now? The atmosphere is expectant. This is a room that's held a lot of weddings, a lot of proms. But tonight, Tom Suozzi hopes to stand up at that podium at about a little after 9 p.m., perhaps later, and say that he is the representative-elect once again for the 3rd District. People are just starting to gather. It won't really get going here till about 9 p.m. But I want to show you. You came for the politics. Stay for the weather. Because weather today, we haven't had this much snow in New York for about two years now, and it just dumped all morning long. I'm gonna show you what it looks like now. We actually, for the first time today, see clear skies, the sun, an absolutely gorgeous uh, scene. There is tons of time still left to vote. So both candidates have been out uh, saying, get out, get out there to vote. Swazi spoke to him a little bit earlier today. He says that he believes the snow helps them because Republicans tend to vote in the morning, says Democrats in the afternoon, and he thinks, all of this snow today will actually help uh, his candidacy and hopefully push him over the line tonight. Very unclear. The, the early votes and, and the votes coming in today, Democrats are up in those votes, but it's not clear how many Democrats are, are crossing over and voting for his rival, Mozzie Pillup, who also hopes and, and is very confident that she will claim victory tonight. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. And just now, a new warning for House Speaker Mike Johnson from a member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus after the U.S. Senate passed the $95 billion foreign aid package for Ukraine and Israel earlier this morning. Joining us now, Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu uh, Raju. Manu, so Speaker Mike Johnson has not committed to even allowing a vote on the Senate bill. Um, we know that Democrats are talking about maybe trying to force a vote using procedural maneuvers. What are you hearing about whether that will work and this new threat from the House Freedom Caucus. Yeah, if Mike Johnson were to move forward and actually put this Senate passed bill on the floor, aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, aid to Taiwan, $95 billion, he would face a revolt among the far right of his conference. In fact, the warning from one of the members of the House Freedom Caucus telling me today that there would almost certainly be a vote to push him out of the speakership, a motion to vacate, something that was used successfully with Kevin McCarthy. And he told me, Warren Davidson, the congressman, told me that Mike Johnson, in that situation, would have to rely on Democrats to hold on to the gavel. If the Speaker were to put the Senate package on the floor, what would that mean for his ability to hold on to the gavel? Uh, he would need Democrats to hold on to the gavel at that point. Because there would be an effort to push him out? Yeah, I mean, multiple of my colleagues have already promised that. I believe that it's not an empty threat, and uh, I, you know, we'll see how it would resolve, but I think he would clearly need Democrats to be able to hold on to the gavel if he went straight to the floor with the Senate package. Would you vote to oust him in that situation? Uh, well, I don't like answering hypotheticals, but I do think that the, the question would get asked. Now, Johnson today essentially ruled out putting this bill on the floor, contending that it needed to have tougher border security restrictions. Of course, Johnson essentially scuttled the bipartisan border security deal in the Senate because he said it did not go far enough. But 
this effort that Democrats are now discussing, Jake, is trying to circumvent Johnson altogether to try to get enough support procedurally to force a vote on the floor that would require the support of a majority of the House, meaning Republicans would have to just sign on with Democrats on this maneuver, which is rarely successful, Jake. It's a long shot, complicated effort, but one that Democrats will be discussing in the days ahead to try to get around Mike Johnson's opposition to this proposal. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. With us now to discuss the leader of Democrats in the House of Representatives, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York. Uh, leader Jeffries, it's good to see you. So early this morning, the Senate passed this $95 billion foreign aid package, foreign aid package for Taiwan, Israel, Ukraine. Uh, Speaker Johnson uh, has said he's not going to bring it up. Uh, he's criticized the bill for not containing the border uh, security provisions. Uh, 22 Senate Republicans voted to pass the bill and I understand that Democrats think there are at least 300 votes in the House for such a, a package if it, were be, if it would be allowed for a vote. Would Republicans be willing to support this aid package, do you think, if it came up for a vote? There are clearly more than 300 members of the House of Representatives. The overwhelming amount of Democrats and a significant number of Republicans who would support the national security legislation were it to receive an up or down vote on the floor of the House. It's urgently necessary that we act in America's national security to bring this bipartisan and comprehensive bill to the floor. It's important that we stand with Israel, stand with Ukraine, stand with our allies in the Indo-Pacific, and certainly ensure that we can surge humanitarian assistance to Palestinian civilians who are in harm's way in Gaza through no fault of their own and civilians in other theaters of war across the world. So there is a provision whereby if 218 members of the House of Representatives sign what's called a discharge petition, those 218 can force a bill onto the floor of the House for a vote. Uh, so if you got all the Democrats, you would need just a handful of Republicans who want aid to Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan to force this vote. Are you going to introduce a discharge petition? And do you have five or six Republican votes or however many you need to, to sign the discharge petition? Well, all legislative options are on the table, and that certainly includes a discharge petition. We have a leadership meeting at around 5.15 where we'll discuss the steps that we can take uh, moving forward to ensure an up or down vote. We'll have a steering and policy meeting later on this evening and then tomorrow we'll gather as a caucus family for the Democratic caucus meeting in the morning. Uh, and then we'll have some clarity as to how we're going to proceed shortly thereafter. But it is clear uh, that it's time to end the extreme MAGA Republican gamesmanship. It's time to end the extreme MAGA Republican brinksmanship. And it's time to end the extreme MAGA Republican partisanship. This is a matter of America's national security, which we should put first and put Vladimir Putin last. The problem is there seem to be some MAGA extremists who actually want to do the inverse. So I understand you haven't made a decision yet, but before you would make a decision to bring such a thing to the floor through a discharge petition, you would know whether or not you have five or six House Republicans who are willing to do it. Do you know that part of the equation? Have you, have you asked if there are House Republicans willing 
willing to join you? I mean, a lot of House Republicans feel very strongly about aid for Israel or aid for Ukraine. Would they be willing to buck Speaker, Speaker uh, Johnson on that? Well, that's certainly a question that I think uh, will need to be fairly asked of House Republicans, traditional conservatives who know that the right thing to do is for there to be an up or down vote on the comprehensive bipartisan national security package. Now, there are, Jake, member to member conversations that have been ongoing over the last several days from Democratic members of the caucus to Republican members of their conference talking about what is possible uh, if House Republican leaders continue to do the bidding of the former President Donald Trump, who seemingly wants to detonate the NATO alliance uh, and America's national security interests in Europe and throughout the world. That would be unfortunate if the House Republican leaders continue to go down that road mm -hmm. and undermine America's national security. Well, you just heard uh, Congressman Davidson from Ohio, member of the House Freedom Caucus, saying that if Speaker Johnson brings this Senate bill up for a vote, on his own, willingly, not being forced to do it through a discharge petition, uh, there would be a motion to vacate. Uh, and the only way he could keep his job as Speaker is with Democratic support. I, uh, you, you were not willing to provide Democratic support to Kevin McCarthy. I assume you have the same position for Speaker Johnson? Well, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, and if that moment is in front of us, as we did on the prior occasion, we'll have a conversation uh, amongst the House Democratic Caucus family and figure out what's the right thing to do for our constituents, for the Congress, uh, and for the country. Right now, the question is, will House Republican leaders do the right thing by the American people, stand with Israel, stand with Ukraine, stand with Taiwan, stand with our Democratic allies all across the world, and stand with civilians who are in harm's way in Gaza and in other theaters of war throughout the world and get them the humanitarian assistance that they need. Let's talk about border security. I, while I understand that you find the maneuver offensive, do you not see that the move by Governor Abbott of Texas uh, to bus migrants to Democratic-leaning cities such as New York or Chicago or Denver, that while you might think it's cruel, it has been effective at demonstrating how this influx, influx of migrants has sapped social service resources and demonstrated that this is a real crisis. Do, do, you, do you agree with that? Well, Governor Abbott is an embarrassment and a human trafficker. But besides uh, his political gamesmanship, I do think it's important for all of us, Democrats and Republicans, to recognize that we have a broken immigration system. We do need to address the challenges at the border. And it should be done in a manner that is comprehensive and bipartisan. That would be the only way uh, to solve this problem. We're in a period of divided government. Common sense dictates, Jake, that we have to work together to solve the challenges that we confront at the border. The American people know this. The only question is whether members of Congress on the other side of the aisle will recognize that their my way of the highway or the highway approach is not an effective strategy at this moment. It's just designed to score political points. Now, we support a border that is strong, that is secure, and that is humane. And it's important for Congress to work together in a common sense, bipartisan way 
to get that done. There's a New York Times story out today describing how Republicans are using bigoted attacks against their political foes. The story gives examples like uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene referring to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar as, quote, Representative Ilhan Omar of Somalia, I mean Minnesota. The article goes on to write earlier that same week, Representative Troy Nels, Republican of Texas, called the black husband of another Democratic woman of color, Representative Cori Bush of Missouri, a thug. Your fellow New York Democrat, Richie Torres, is quoted in the article saying, the nature of Trumpism is to embolden extremism and that the extreme elements have concluded that racism might be bad morals, but it's good politics. Do you agree with Congressman Torres? Well, I certainly agree uh, that we all should be alarmed by the nature of the attacks that are being leveled by extreme MAGA Republicans at their political opponents. Uh, we need to take the temperature down. And the individuals that you reference on the Republican side of the aisle are unserious individuals at best. They're not in Congress in order to make life better for everyday Americans. They're in Congress to perform, often for the puppet master, the former president of the United States of America. Now, this is a time where we need to come together as Americans, recognize the power and beauty and majesty of the fact that we are a nation of immigrants, people who have come from all over the world to pursue the American dream of different races, creeds, and colors, a gorgeous mosaic. That is who we are. We do have differences politically, uh, but I think the things that connect us, opportunity, freedom, democracy, should be much stronger than the things that others are trying to use to divide us. Lastly, sir, right now, New York's congressional third district is, is holding a special election to fill the seat vacated by former Congressman George Santos. The Democratic candidate, Tom Suozzi, a former, former congressman, he has distanced himself from President Biden. He did not seek his endorsement. I want you to listen to what he told CNN's Manu Raju. But what about Biden specifically? Joe Biden is underwater here in my district, but so is uh, Donald Trump. They're both very, very unpopular uh, candidates. Would you want to campaign with Biden? I could pretty much guarantee that the president's not going to be coming to campaign here. <laughs> but America. this is a huge seat. I mean, don't you think the president, you know, could be helpful in it if he came out here? I don't think it would be helpful. Does that concern you at all that a Democrat in an important House race does not want the endorsement uh, or the presence of President Biden? Well, Tom Swazi is a common sense, let's fix the problem, get stuff done kind of Democrat, and he's running his own race. It's a race between Tom Suozzi and an extreme MAGA Republican on the other side who wants to come join the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world in not doing the things that are necessary to solve problems for the people of Queens and Long Island. I'm confident that Tom Suozzi is in this for all the right reasons to make life better for the people that he hopes to represent in the 3rd Congressional District. Before you go, sir, lots of concerns expressed by voters and by a special counsel, her, about uh, President Biden's age, his mental faculties. Um, what's your response? Well, the report by the special counsel was inappropriate, gratuitous, unconscionable, and in many ways, un-American. Uh, the American people just simply want the truth. And the truth is that President Biden did nothing wrong and was completely and totally exonerated, period, full stop. 
the fact that the special counsel decided to personally attack President Biden reveals that his motives were impure and that any conclusions that he made in that report separate and apart from the facts and the law should be dismissed. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it today. Thank you, Jake. Keeping it all in the family, Donald Trump endorsing his daughter-in-law to be the next co-chair of the Republican National Committee. Nikki Haley has some thoughts on that. You'll hear them next. Plus, can't anyone take a joke anymore? Some Republicans and Democrats taking issue with comedian Jon Stewart's long-awaited return last night. Stay with us. Nine months till the election, people! And the exciting part is, we already know our candidates. It's, drum roll please, these guys! And our politics lead, he's back. Jon Stewart made his return to The Daily Show on Comedy Central last night as the calendar inches closer and closer to what seems like an inevitable rematch between two candidates with firm grips on their party's nominations and as President Biden's and former President Trump's influence on lawmakers on Capitol Hill has snarled anything from getting done, anything done there, back with me is our political panel. So, Paul, as, as you know, Stewart made his triumphant return to late-night satire. Uh, take, take a listen. my back uh, you may be asking yourselves it's a very reasonable question uh, I have committed a lot of crimes <laughs> from what I understand talk show hosts are granted immunity so it doesn't so he, he made fun of wherever the targets were including President Biden's mm-hmm. age and memory uh, and there were a lot of angry progressives on social media. Not that I generally listen to angry people on social media, but but they thought that they accused him of both signerism, although that's not what he did, et cetera, et cetera. W- what do you I, make of it? I didn't see it, but he's known to be a both sides guy. He is. He skewers both sides. That's his job. That's how he uh, views things. Um, I, I do think that that was probably appropriate when the choice was like Obama or Romney. Okay, but for progressives, by the way, for a lot of non-progressives, a lot of conservatives, this is a choice between sanity and a guy who's an existential threat to our country. But I I think that was reflected. That's not that's not like I think that was reflected in his comedy, though. I don't think he equated the choices, but he just also acknowledged some of the jokes to be made at President Biden. Which I actually think is healthy. We cannot be afraid of making fun of ourselves. And actually, you know, you saw President Biden make fun of his age over the weekend. It was funny. It was good. Like, come on. We already know they're both old. And I agree when it comes down to the actual issues. He's he's there's not the both sides rhythm. I, I saw some of the flipping out by progressives online. And I was like, come on, guys. You're going to have to learn to take a joke if we're going to survive between now and November. Um, speaking of uh, humorous asides, Trump is flexing his muscle over the Republican Party. He's now endorsing his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, for co-chair of the Republican National Committee. Here's what Nikki Haley had to say about that. Now he has decided he has fired the RNC chair. He's named who's going to be the new RNC chair. His daughter-in-law will be the co-chair. And he is making his campaign manager the the officer that runs the party. Think about what's happening right now. Is that how you're going to try and take an election? We should also note the person he's endorsing to be the other co-chair, not in his family, 
is the Republican chairman of uh, the North Carolina Republican Party, who is a full-on election liar. Um, what's your take? So typically the way the co-chair position works is that you have a chair and then the co-chair of the RNC must be of the opposite gender. So by endorsing his daughter-in-law for co-chair, you can argue, you know, how important do people think that job is? Do they think it is one that really does a lot to go fundraise and make money? And if, if your job is to be someone who's going to go out and fundraise and be popular, then maybe it's not a terrible pick. But wow, does it send a really bad message that this is just a family business. And of course, people would criticize the Bush family for, well, it's all in the family. It's all in the family. We need somebody, something different. And then the Trumps came along and they've had, it's all in the family. They've had the family's running politics. Now they're criticizing Biden for having too many of his family members involved in politics. Surely we can have a political system in this country where people can get ahead without having to be related to someone who is running for office, correct? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, <laughs> not to defend Joe Biden's brothers or son, but like they're not running any, they're doing their own thing. They're not ahead of the I DNC. am merely saying that I think it sends a very bad message yeah. to America when you say, you know who I think would be best for the job? Let me just pick someone within my own family. And I think it's silly for Donald Trump to be doing that. Yeah, look, so I, I, I think there's a little, lots of distinctions to the point Jake made. I do think like, you know, Jim Biden and, 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 and Hunter, that's, that's more nefarious because it's inside the White House. The, the RNC and DNC. It wasn't against no, 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 I don't want to be citizens. Let me finish. Hold on. Let me They're finish. doing oh, lobbying. Don't, don't, get, don't get crazy here. Let me finish. So the RNC and the DNC. <laughs> I'm just saying are, it wasn't inside the White House. I, 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 I don't I, like what they did, but they didn't work right. for the White House. Okay, they didn't work for the White House, but they were lobbying the White House. This is uh, the, the, this is traditionally picked by the president. These jobs are when the oh, oh Karen, don't get all huffy here. Hold on. I, 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 the president picks who the head of the DNC is when he's running when he's the president. And the president picks who are the RNC when they're running the White House. Laura Trump is very good at what she does. She raises lots of money. She's very charismatic. The base loves her. I think it's a good pick. And, and he picked the loyalist to be the head. And Chris LaCivita is a no BS guy who's going to run the place strictly, raise money, and keeps funds spent in the right direction. Well, you guys do the same being thing. being accused of being huffy. Let, let <laughs> you were huffy. Say, you were huffing hey, at me. To, no, to, I wasn't. To, to I be was... fair, he accused me of going crazy. That's true. All right. So, so I'm in good company. That's, which is <laughs> arguably worse. Anyway. No, I think the difference, though, is given what we know about how much the RNC is contributing to the Trump Legal Defense Fund, what you're saying is you're putting a family member in charge of, of having a fiscal responsibility not only for the party and potentially races where you may have candidates who Trump does not agree with, where so he will have control of the party, but also where those finances go and how they benefit him, not just in the context of running for president, but also his legal. But that's how it works troubles. historically. Yes. No news. He was no in the news. White House. Look, when he was in the White House, he gave all Shiv, Roman, Kendall, they all had jobs. Right. Tom Wombsbang was working. I mean, he always puts a family on the payroll. A little payroll. succession reference for, for anybody who doesn't watch HBO Max. I, I don't know pop culture. I appreciate it. It's a recent pop culture reference, which I appreciate. Thanks, one and all. A new body cam video reveals the very moment when deputies mistook a house guest for an intruder and repeatedly shot her. Her attorney, Benjamin Crump, is here. Stay with us. In our national lead, disturbing new body camera video shows two sheriff's deputies in Houston responding to a report of a suspected burglary. They fired dozens of rounds through an apartment door at a woman inside whom they mistook for an intruder. The video released was edited by authorities, and I should warn you that what we're about to show you is graphic. 
The woman shot in the video survived. She remains in stable condition. Both deputies are on leave while the investigation unfolds. Joining us now is CNN law enforcement correspondent uh, Whitney Wild. Whitney, what exactly exactly happened here? Well, this all started actually at another apartment in the apartment complex. So at 2.15 on February 3rd, 2.15 in the morning, uh, police respond to a call that there's an intruder at another apartment in that same apartment complex. So the first sheriff's deputy from the Harris County Sheriff's Office goes into that first apartment, clears it, and finds that there's no intruder. A second deputy arrived to assist, and as those deputies were leaving, a neighbor in that same apartment complex flagged down the sheriff's deputies and said that they were concerned there was another intruder, uh, another burglary in a neighboring apartment. So that's when police went to the apartment in which Ebony Pouncey was. Uh, so they go to the door, as you see in this video, they knock, they announce themselves as the sheriff's office, then they step back. Uh, and as you see in that video, uh, it, it's not exactly clear what, what they can see through the window, but according to the sheriff's office, one of those deputies saw a woman with a firearm, and as they're giving that command to drop the weapon, uh, almost simultaneously, police start firing. When, uh, and I think it's important to note that when sheriff's deputies got to that apartment, uh, what they saw was broken glass. They saw that there was a screen missing and they saw that the uh, windows were raised up. What happened, according to one of the women who was inside that apartment, was that they had broken into that window because they didn't have their keys. So they went inside. Uh, here's what she said happened next. So I told her to break the window. I go inside. Once I went inside, um, we were there for about 20 minutes. The next thing I know, I hear loud banging on the door. I, w I was like, what's that? What's that noise? Ebony grabbed um, her gun and ran to the door. I didn't hear anything after that. Um, the next thing I know, Ebony came back and, and, and she said she was shot. Again, breaking that window because they didn't have keys to that apartment. Harris County District Attorney's Office is investigating. The Harris County Sheriff's Office says that anybody with information should come forward, Jake. Whitney Wild, thanks so much. I'm joined now in studio by Ben Crump. He's the attorney for Ebony Pouncey. What, what can you tell us, first of all, about the, the injuries she suffered? Is she going to be okay? Well, preferably, she's going to be okay, even though she's in rehabilitation. Jake, she is, I mean, miraculous that... She's alive. It is a miracle. She got shot in her left breast, her left abdomen. A bullet went into her thigh. Bullet went through her leg. Bullet went in her feet. And, I mean, over two dozen bullets. And she lives. So that is the miracle. Her mother, her family, even though she is in rehab and struggling, they're grateful that she's alive. She had five, five bullet wounds? Five bullet wounds. So the video released by the Harris County Sheriff's Office was, was edited. Have you seen the full video? We have not, and if that's the edited version, we can only imagine what the unedited version is going to reveal to us. Under Texas law, anyone over the age of 21 can carry a handgun openly. Yes. Not just inside an apartment, but openly on the street, unless they have a criminal record, unless they have a criminal record. Do you was was she within her rights to own that gun? She was absolutely within her rights to own that gun. And it underscores the fact that the Second Amendment 
police have to be sensitive to that because everybody now is availing themselves to the Second Amendment promises that I can bear arms, I can carry a gun. Black people, too, have a right to the Second Amendment. And this really reminds a lot of people, Jacob, the tragic killing of Breonna Taylor with her boyfriend. They didn't hear the police, just like Ebony. They didn't know it was the police. They were trying to protect their home, too. But it was a shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. The deputies said they identified themselves when they knocked at the door. They said, sheriff's deputies, um, she had a she had a weapon, though, when she came. Did she come to the door or was she already at the door? When no, she, had the- she was coming to the door and she got shot multiple times. You hear the number of shots. You see the deputy reload. And what is very troubling from the experts that we've talked to, first of all, if you really believe that it's a burglary in progress, then you unload. What about the innocent people in the house? Right. I mean, you would have killed them as well, or they would have been shot too. And so it's just troubling. It's excessive. Two dozen, over two dozen shots. I thank God she's going to be okay, uh, physically at least. Have you, I mean, she was, as far as the facts are, as I understand them, she was exercising her Second Amendment rights under Texas law, under federal law, and was doing nothing wrong. Has the NRA reached out to talk about defending or helping her case, given the fact that she was just exercising that right? They have not, just as they did not with Amir Locke. You remember the young man in Minneapolis yeah, he had who a had a gun, yeah. law-abiding citizen. And so we need to hear from these gun rights advocates who talk about citizens who are within their legal rights to carry guns when it's black people who get shot and killed by the police. Right. The Second Amendment doesn't have a, a clause there saying it's just for white people. Exactly, Jake. And we need to continue to remind them of that. Benjamin Crump, always good to see you, sir. I you appreciate too, it. Thank you. Israeli officials say they have a video showing the leader of Hamas hiding in a tunnel in Gaza. We're going to go on the ground to Israel next. In our world lead, newly released video purportedly showing the leader of Hamas, Yahya Sinwar. Israeli officials say the CCTV footage is from October 10th and appears to show Sinwar walking with his wife, children, and brother inside a tunnel below the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus. CNN cannot independently verify that Sinwar is the man seen in the video, nor can we verify when it was recorded, and the IDF did not provide additional evidence to support its claims. But we do know that Khan Yunus has been a center of the Israeli siege against Hamas in recent weeks. Let's get to CNN's Nick Robertson, who's in Tel Aviv for us. Nick, what more are Israeli officials saying about this video, and why do they think it's significant? They say that this uh, is indicative of their effort to track down any intelligence that can give them any information about where Sinwar is at the moment. We know that they've been going through the tunnels in Han Yunus and even found the tunnel in Han Yunus where they say that he lived for a while. This, this CCTV video that, as you say, was from the 10th of October, so quite some time ago. It is the first time we've seen video evidence of Simois after the October 7th attacks, but it is really not a good clue, I guess, to where he might be at the moment. And the, uh, the IDF say they did manage to get this video, though, quite recently. So indicative, they would say, of, of their continued hunt and prioritizing the hunt for Simois. 
Meantime, CIA chief Bill Burns uh, has been dispatched to Egypt to work on a hostage deal with the chief of Mossad from Israel and other key mediators from Qatar and Egypt. What are your sources saying about how negotiations are going? Yeah, they seem to be done for the moment, as best we can tell. The Mossad chief is on his way back here to Tel Aviv. Uh, productive and serious is how U.S. officials are describing uh, the talks so far. But the gap, according to one source, still appears to be, uh, or, and there may be more, but this source is talking about this particular gap in the talks, the number of uh, Hamas prisoners in Israeli jails that would be released for each of the Israeli hostages that Hamas is holding. That seems to be one of the sticking points. In the past, the number had been discussed uh, as one, as a three for one, three Hamas prisoners for one hostage. But it seems Hamas still want a much bigger number than that. And that's what Prime Minister Netanyahu is balking at. And I think the other indicator of how the talks have gone, productive but serious, Hamas has said earlier, uh, earlier today that if the talks were going well, they would send a representative pretty quickly to follow on. And the early indications from Hamas are that's not going to happen in short order. Jake? Is there any clarity on Israel's uh, timeline to enter Rafah and a ground invasion? Yeah, there isn't, as best we can tell. I mean, I talked with the spokesman yesterday uh, and he indicated they're still waiting for the government to give them that order. We know that some of the folks, some of the 1.4 million people who are in Rafa at the moment, some of them were leaving Rafa today to get away from it um, because they're afraid of what's going to happen. Uh, and a lot more frustration and anger from uh, from leaders over this, adding to what President Biden said, that it shouldn't happen without a without an adequate plan to protect the civilians. Uh, UN Secretary General has called it, you know, potential disaster. German Foreign Minister, Italian Foreign Minister spoken out about it. And the, actually the Irish Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, has said it could lead to a bloodbath. Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Long COVID is something we've typically associated with folks who have weakened immune systems. It turns out that's wrong. We have a new report on the issue next. In our health lead, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is expected to ease its guidance over how long people should isolate after catching COVID, according to the Washington Post. This comes as new studies show that long COVID extends to more of the population than had been previously thought. CNN health reporter Jacqueline Howard joins us now. Jacqueline, walk us through these expected CDC guidelines first. Well, Jake, the expected guidelines, we expect them to focus more on a patient's symptoms than giving a blanket number of how many days you should isolate. So currently, if you test positive for COVID-19, it's recommended to isolate for at least five days. And if you have symptoms after that, you have to keep isolating. But what we're hearing is that this spring, there might be an update where that recommendation is relaxed and the updated guidelines might possibly say that if you don't have a fever for at least 24 hours without the help of medication, and if your symptoms are generally mild or improving, then you do not need to isolate. Now, these are just discussions that are happening. This is not a new guideline at this time. In fact, the CDC says in a statement, quote, there are no updates to COVID guidelines to announce at this time. We will continue to make decisions based on the best evidence and science to keep communicate communities healthy and safe. But 
You know, Jake, if these guidelines are updated this spring, relaxing them in this way would make them align more so with what we're seeing at the local level in some states like California and Oregon. And the idea here is that many people have had COVID already or they've been vaccinated. So there's enough community immunity to possibly relax these guidelines. So this will be interesting to watch in, in the coming months, Jake. Let's talk about long COVID now, because many people typically think of it as an, an issue for those with weaker immune systems or, or the yeah. elderly. But new studies suggest there are many other groups impacted by long COVID. Who else is likely to be suffering from long COVID? Absolutely. There are two new studies, one looking at COVID patients who were pregnant at the time of their infection. And that study found that about one in 10, about 9.3% of people who were pregnant while they had COVID went on to develop long COVID. Now that one in 10 is similar to what we've seen in the adult population that wasn't pregnant when they had COVID. But we also know that children can also get long COVID. And a separate study found that up to 5.8 million children have had long COVID. So these new numbers really put in perspective just how prevalent long COVID has been, not just in the general population, or like you said, in people with, uh, you know, immunocompromised, but also among people who are pregnant or also among children. So it's, it's interesting to see this data come out looking specifically at long COVID, Jake. All right, Jacqueline Howard, thanks so much for that reporting. Today, nearly three weeks after that life-size statue of Jackie Robinson was stolen and destroyed, Kansas police say they found the person responsible. We'll tell you about that next. In our sports lead, an arrest in Wichita, Kansas today, nearly three weeks after a life-sized bronze statue of all-time baseball great and civil rights hero Jackie Robinson was stolen and destroyed. Robinson was, of course, the man who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947. 45-year-old Ricky Alderette is charged with felony theft and aggravated criminal damage to property. Police say there's no evidence to suggest this was a hate crime. Instead, Police say the suspect seemingly wanted to sell the statue for scrap. Look out for a special series from me this Sunday called The United States of Scandal. We're going to take a closer look and deeper dive at some of the most outrageous and iconic political controversies in modern times. Governor Rod Blagojevich, John Edwards, Jim McGreevy, Valerie Plame, and much, much more. The series premieres Sunday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 